The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So before we get started today, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The news professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we have more numbers to report. It looks like we blew right by 15,000 listeners, and we're well on our way to hit 20,000 listeners on our pilot series for Task Force 7 Radio. I want to thank all of you for your support and your feedback Please continue to tell your friends about the show and make sure you share the post that you see on social media about TF7 Radio to all your networks. And most of all, make sure you listen to all the shows on playback. I mean, I didn't even tell anyone about the show until a couple days before our pilot episode was broadcasted. So for us to be well on our way to 20,000 listeners in this short period of time is nothing short of amazing. And, 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 I, and I can really see that the show was really starting to find its target audience. And, you, and who's the target audience, you might ask? That's anyone interested in how cybersecurity issues affect their quality of life. And I have all of you to thank for this, so thank you very much. Let's keep it going. You know, I, I just had a conversation with someone, and, and I never met before. Never met this person before in my life. I was at a social event, and we started talking, and he said, hey, you know, I, I listen to your show. And, you know, he said he found out about it because coworkers told him that he should tune in. And I just thought that was so cool. So we, we got into a discussion about TF7 Radio, and I got some of his feedback because I, I want to know what he thought and the criticisms and things and how we can better the show and how it compares to some of the other cybersecurity podcasts that are out there. I mean, his feedback was spot on with what I'm trying to accomplish. So first of all, this is not a podcast done at the convenience of the host and posted on the internet at any time for playback. It's an internet radio talk show, and there's a difference, okay? This is a reputable news show produced by one of the most powerful internet radio producers in the world in Voice America Talk Radio. Also, I, I, don't, I don't come on the show with my friends and just start talking about a vacation I had or, you know, uh, telling war stories about what I did on Friday night. I mean, we jump right into the real issues here the real issues that people care about, and the amount of information that we actually covered during this one-hour period really blows the competition out of the water. So we, we, we talked about how TF7 Radio is a Tier 1 show with Tier 1 guests 
and how that's really resonating with the TF7 listenership. I mean, no other security podcast or radio show, for that matter, has had the high-profile, credible leaders in cybersecurity that we have had on Task Force 7 in just our pilot series. I mean, they just don't. It just doesn't happen. It's just not happening. I mean, come on. What are we talking about? I tell you to go listen to them to figure it out yourselves, but I don't want you to listen to them. I want you to stay right here with us. Take my word for it. It ain't happening. My new friend told me, and I quote, no one else does it the way you do it. And he's right. He's spot on. So most of the other shows have lower level professionals as guests, and they come on and they talk about technical issues. And hey, look, these are good people. These are really smart people, good people. They're fighting the good fight. I hope they're going to have them as listeners on this show and members of the Task Force 7 social network that's coming soon to a smartphone near you. But as far as the, the, the podcasts go, I mean, I mean, they're really in the weeds in these discussions, and they sit around on the, on the podcast, and they're talking about how they got into cybersecurity after playing video games when they were kids, and, and they sit around geeking out with bits and bytes and talking about Java code, and half the time, even the technical people, I know, they don't even know what the hell they're talking about. So, I mean, who's listening to this stuff? I mean, I asked the listener that I had just met, why does he think it is that none of these hosts ever talk about the amount of listeners they have for their podcasts, not their shows, but their podcasts. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, well, probably because there isn't that many people listening. And I tend to think he's right. We want to make an impact here. We want to make an impact. And to do that, we need to develop a listenership, a coalition, if you will, to get things done and to move forward in a positive direction. So we're going to keep it coming for you. Task Force 7 is a tier one show with the deepest relationships and the best information. We're going to keep using our connections and our extensive network to bring in the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world, which leads me to tell you a little bit about the next guest we're going to have on the second and third segments of tonight's 12th episode of Task Force 7 Radio. We're going to have Mark Clancy on the show tonight. Mark has 25 years in information technology, and for the last 15 years, he has focused pr primarily on cybersecurity and technology risk management issues from the data center to the boardroom. He has worked with business leaders, industry groups, public officials, legislatures, and regulatory authorities around the globe to advance cybersecurity practices, standards, regulations, and laws. Mark is the founder of Cyber Risk Research. It's a research and consultancy organization focused on cybersecurity sense-making and decision-making by using automation, analytics, and configuration discipline to alter the economics of cyber intrusions and attacks in favor of defenders. So Mark's got an extensive background in cybersecurity. I mean, everybody knows Mark. Everybody in my business knows Mark. Mark was the chief executive officer of Sultra, which was a joint venture between DTCC and the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center the FSISAC, and he was also managing director in DTCC's data solution business. Solter was founded in September of 2014 to promote the sharing and consumption of cyber threat information via automation to reduce risk and for critical infrastructures and increase attacker costs. So Mark facilitated the sale and transition of the Solter business to NC4 in November of 2016. Until July of 2015, Mark was the managing director of technology risk management at DTCC. It's a position established in January of 2012 in the company. And then Mark joined DTCC in 2009 
as a corporate information security officer, just pushing back in his history here. So in his broadened position, he had enterprise-wide responsibility for developing and implementing global security and business continuity policies, standards, guidelines, procedures, and threat assessments pertaining to DTCC. It's a big job. He also chaired the DTCC Security Steering Committee, which composed of senior IT management as well as business line and other corporate managers. He engaged with all the DTCC global banking and securities regula regulators, including the New York State Department of Financial Services, the Federal Reserve, and everyone from the SEC, CFTC, FCA, and Bank of England, and on and on and on. So, He's very active in the financial services and critical infrastructure communities, and Mark participates in the FSI SAC and the FISIC, which is the Financial Services Sector Coordinating Council. He is a frequent speaker at FSI SAC conferences, and he's also a member of FSI SAC's Threat Intelligence Committee. In addition, he served on FSI SAC's Board of Directors, a member of FISIC's Executive Committee, and as the chair of physics international coordination efforts, okay? So the guy's no joke, right? Mark's the real deal. Mark's has spoken at dozens, dozens of cybersecurity events, and the, and the list is very, very long. I'm not even gonna try to go over it, but it's dozens, and he's also testified before US Congress, House Homeland Security Committee, the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Entities, and the Senate Commerce Committee on cybersecurity issues. So this is the kind of guest that we have on, on TF7 Radio, folks. Mark Clancy, telling us what he thinks about the hiring process for CISOs and research and development in the cybersecurity space, coming up on the second and third segments of the show. So you've heard the news media bashing Uber, and you know, I haven't exactly been nice to Uber in light of all the facts that have emerged about the hush money payments and the NDAs with criminals and surveillance of law enforcement, withholding the disclosure of the hack to all their customers for months and months. So I haven't been nice to them either. But if you listen to the previous episodes of the show, you know how I feel about this. If you haven't, I urge you to go grab it on playback. I mean, it's available 24-7, 365 now on Voice America. I think we're on Stitcher, Player.fm, TuneIn, iTunes, and Google Play. We're everywhere. All the episodes are on there. You can go back and listen to whatever you want, anytime you want, whenever it's convenient for you. But also in previous episodes of the show, I've defended CSOs and CISOs who work for companies who have been breached against the crazies out there who are calling for their firing, but their incarceration and confiscation of all their money as well. I mean, I really get fired up when I talk about this because it just doesn't seem right. So I, I, I'm going I'm to do something tonight that no one else does. I'm going to read to you what the cybersecurity community thinks about Joe Sullivan. Not some reporter who doesn't know how to turn on their computer, but what the cybersecurity people think of Joe, who is the former CSO of Uber, who was just recently dismissed from his position after the breach. So this is from Jim Routh, one of the most respected cybersecurity professionals in the industry, basically the Derek Jeter of cybersecurity, okay? Here's what the guy had to say, and I'm gonna paraphrase this for the sake of brevity. I've known Joe for many years. I share information with Joe because he has always has well thought out ideas on techniques for improving enterprise cyber resiliency. Joe has a law background and he uses that expertise but relies on his pragmatic and often technical approach to control design. Joe was recently in the news and the result was not favorable. My perspective has not changed. Joe is one of the top CISOs 
in the IT industry, and I value his insights. He deserves it based on how he has helped others, and I wish him well. So here's the reaction to that post from Jim Routh that was on LinkedIn. These are other members of the cybersecurity community. This is from Tom Pager, the chief security officer of Newstar, one of my best friends, and also another guest on this show. He says this, I can't agree more. Joe has always been supportive. Joe always has supported diverse teams in different ways of thinking. And because of this philosophy, he also pioneered many ways we think about security. So for example, he helped push things like bug bounties. I too wish Joe the best. This is from Craig Frolic over at uh, Bank of America, the CISO of Bank of America. I wish him well. He's done a lot in his life and career, and people are now judging him on what they hear or read without all the context he had at the time. I'm sure the facts will come out, and I hope it reinforces how good he really is. This is from Jerry Diagostino. Joe is a stand-up guy with tremendous character and expertise. It's a travesty that he's being publicly shamed. He's a straight shooter and as ethical as they come. This from Steve Moscarelli. Jim was very well said. Joe Sullivan, we all know, is widely considered to be a top-notch person in our industry. Spending some time with him in San Francisco was a pleasure. This from Jason Clark. Joe is one of the best CISOs from an innovation standpoint, and I always respected him. He has always been willing to help anyone that needed it. I wish him well also, and I'm glad that you posted this. This from Larry Whiteside Jr. I know Larry, good guy, solid professional. He says this, thanks for sharing. I agree with you. Both Joe and Susan deserve better than the treatment they have gotten from a slew of people that know nothing about them, their integrity or their situations. They immediately have assumptions that are made about CISOs who have cybersecurity issues at their respective companies and it's really sad especially because many of those assumptions are made without facts, circumstances, or context. We need, to do a better, we need to do better as an industry in this regard and hold each other up rather than tear each other down. Well said, Larry. This by John Ramsey. Knowing Joe and his passion for doing the right thing, I suspect there were many factors that in play beyond his control, and I wish him well. And this kind of goes on and on. There's a few other people that kind of have the same thing, the same sort of theme, the same respect for the man. But as with most things in life, not everyone agrees, right? So Frank Sargent had this to say. And people wonder how the old boy networks run. We should be using this news for our own education and continue to better our industry. Joe, innocent or not, doesn't need support on LinkedIn. He needs a good attorney. I wonder how many likes Bill Cosby and Matt Lauer and others who people protest are quote unquote good guys get, referring to the number of likes on posts on social media. 388 likes so far make me ashamed of being in this feed, referring to the amount of likes that was on the original post. So the treatment of CSOs and CISOs who've had a bad day, and which we all will, everybody will have a bad day in this business. No one's exempt, okay? This is quickly becoming a big debate. And I'm going to keep talking about it on this show. I kind of feel like these people are being thrown under the bus and used as scapegoats, and the visceral reaction towards them is really disconcerting. If you heard me criticize Uber in previous episodes, I criticized the company in general with the facts that we've all been presented, but I did not criticize any one individual or rest blame for any failures on the security executives 
Because I don't really know what happened in that company over there. I don't know. You don't know. I, I haven't seen anything that told us exactly how those decisions were made. I don't know who made those decisions. Or what was the circumstances around the facts that they were presented at the time those decisions were made? Or uh, it, it, just, it just hasn't been made public yet. So for all we know, the security executives could have made decisions that were overruled by the CEO. You just don't know. No one knows yet. Anything's possible. So all I'm saying is that someone like Joe Sullivan, who has a storied career, has helped so many people, has devoted his life to battling the bad guys. Absent any direct evidence to the contrary, he deserves the benefit of the doubt, man. He deserves the right not to be prematurely judged, especially by people who don't have a clue what happened. In regards to the mess we all know as the Uber breach. We'll be right back with Mark Clancy after these messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. One of the sources I cite often on this show is cybersecurityventures.com. Cybersecurity Ventures is the world's leading researcher and publisher of events covering the global cyber economy. Cybersecurityventures.com is a trusted source for cybersecurity facts, figures, and statistics, and their informative website delivers cyber economic market data, insights, and groundbreaking predictions to a global audience that consists of anyone interested in cybersecurity. So if you want to learn more about the facts around the cybersecurity industry, and read interesting predictions on the cybersecurity talent crisis, cybercrime, and other cybersecurity issues, go to cybersecurityventures.com. That's cybersecurityventures.com. So I'm excited to introduce our next guest. Uh, I'm here with uh, one of the most well-known cybersecurity experts in the country, my friend and co-founder of Cyber Risk Research, Mr. Mark Clancy. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, George. Great, great. So, Mark, I've been talking about the talent crisis a lot lately, and one of the things that I brought up over the last few episodes is that there are a lot of CISO jobs opening up around the country in companies that previously didn't have this role. So now there seems to be a debate on you know what this role should really be and how it's evolving and what it really means. I mean, you used to be a, a CISO. In your mind, what is the CISO role? So the CISO role is really about taking the dark arts of technology and how it's exploited and translating that into what it means to a business. And that, you know, is sort of a simple answer. If you go and read any job description that's posted, um, you'll never see that, right? That's not the words that are used in recruiting, but that's actually what the job is fundamentally about, to take that technology risk and translate it into a business context. How much, how much should information security officers know, chief information security officers know about risk as opposed to security and, and how does that sort of mix it together? It depends on their, their upbringing, if you would, right? So you've got kind of two different uh, source 
backgrounds. You have people who came out of a business or risk management background and got pushed into, hey, deal with this technology thing, this technology risk, the cyber risk. And then you have more technologists who came out, they might have been system administrators or people who had security backgrounds, and they moved into a leadership position. And I think it's important to recognize you have those two different starting points because the perspective you bring to the role might be quite different. Um, and you have to have both. You have to become bilingual, right? I love to quote from Suzanne Spaulding. She said one time, you know, part of the problem is we speak about this whole thing, not in English, but in Klingon. And the key is you've got to be that bilingual. You've got to have the understanding of how technology works, but you also have to be able to translate it into some type of business speak that's understood by the leadership in your organization. So it, people that hold these CISO roles have different backgrounds. Some have business backgrounds, some have risks, more security strengths, and both. I mean, so it's a variety of different things. Just because it's called a security officer doesn't necessarily mean you don't need those other skills, right? No, you need both, right? And, and you, know, you don't have to have equal strength on both sides, right? A lot of it depends on, to some degree, the maturity of your organization, where your program is. You know, one of the things I get asked all the time is where should the CISO report? And for me, that's actually a journey, right? Early organizations, the CISO almost always lives inside of the technology organization because that's where you have to get the fundamental things started. But as you evolve the sophistication of your program, the reporting relationship actually changes. And when you get to the upper end of the maturity scale, you're truly a C-suite executive reporting either the CEO or somebody like a chief administrative officer and out completely outside of the technology organization. But you still have to know how the technology organization works and what makes it successful and to some degree where its problems are. So there's a, there's a lot of moves being made around the industry to redefine the three lines of defense and, and how they interact with each other. Um, and this has been a topic of discussion over the last, you know, six months or so. What, what, what are the, the three lines of defense and how does, it, how does a CISO fit into that whole model? Sure. If you think of it, there's sort of an operational function, which is, you know, the guards on the wall, right? Looking at the, the invaders coming over the hill, right? That's sort of the first line of defense. The second line of defense is more at the sort of strategy and the planning side of, you know, are we worried about the right things? Do we know, you know, what other adversaries we face? Do we know what our important assets and crown jewels are? And who's taking care of that from sort of a, a risk management overlook perspective? And the third side, and this is typically an audit organization in most companies, is are the things that the first two lines of defense doing actually effective to the hazards and threats that we have? And so the way I see is CISOs tend to live in the first and second line of defense. Um, they may push things as the organization matures into, say, the IT organization for the first line, but they typically live at that second line of defense is where they spend most of their time. Okay. So the last edition of TF7 Radio, we talked about the cybersecurity talent gap. and But you were saying that the, the other side of the problem is companies don't know how to hire in this space. I mean, the people just don't know how to go about acquiring a quality chief information security officer. So can you kind of expand on that? Sure. And I'm going to use, and I, people who know me know I abuse analogies a lot. I'm going to talk about this in the context of buying a house, right? So when you buy a house, what you're doing is you're finding a property that suits your needs in the market you want to live and the price point you can afford, right? You're looking for all those pieces. So you know how many bedrooms, what neighborhood, what schools, all that kind of stuff. And shopping for a CISO is not dissimilar from that, right? But you've got to recognize that, you know, are you a first-time home buyer and you need the starter house? Or, you know, do you have young children and need lots of bedrooms? Or have, you know, the kids all left the nest, right? 
And so you've got different sort of maturities of your life cycle. And that leads to looking at different properties. And of course, you have your price range. And what I found is a lot of companies want that unicorn. They want that person who is the cryptographer diplomat, right, who knows everything about technology and you know, can speak most eloquently on every topic. Um, and that's not what's unavailable in the market when they go looking, right? Uh, so you've got that challenge. The second is, you know, they've got um, a mansion desire in a, in a starter home budget, right? And so there's a price point question of if they're going to go out and acquire the top talent, they're willing to pay for that talent, as you've talked about on the program, that's in scarce supply. Then the last part is, you know, if the first house you buy is a mansion, it's probably too much house for you, right? And so I kind of came up with this joke with some colleagues of mine about the starter CISO. And that's not a dig on people who take the first role at a position, but it's actually a unique thing to be the first chief information security officer in a company because you've got a lot of foundational building and organizational networking you need to do which is to some degree a different set of experience and skills where you need to take a program from sort of a starting state and mature it to a high effective state. Um, and when I talk to recruiters, they kind of don't understand that spectrum, right? They just, you know, put out the job description. And if you look at a CISO job description from, you know, the most small company first officer they've ever hired to even large financials who've been very sophisticated and have very large leadership roles, the job descriptions don't actually look that different, but the jobs themselves are very different and the organizations are different. I mean, what, what do you say to these companies that, I mean, I, I think they just don't get it. I mean, I, you know, I see there's some of these companies out there as far as, far as the, the price point that they're going to have to spend to get a quality CISO with the, with the training, the education, the experience, the know-how to adequately manage their defense and death posture. I mean, I just see, I see some of these uh, companies coming out for the first time and saying, okay, we're going to hire a CISO. And the, the compensation package that they're putting together is, d- does not hit the mark. And it's just, and, and, you know, I mean, I don't think they get it. I mean, are you seeing the same thing or? I, I am. I mean, I admittedly, personally, I don't talk to a lot of those companies, but I certainly see them out in the market. And I think what it is, is, you know, they realize they have to do something. They don't know what it is yet. Everybody else hires someone with this title so we're going to hire someone with this title, but we're not going to actually treat it like an executive position, right? It's really like a director of information security buried somewhere in the IT organization, right? They're just, you know, sort of title inflating. Um, and that's because they don't understand the risk environment they live in yet, right? I don't know any business, well, maybe a few like the sandwich shop around the corner, but very few that aren't digital businesses today, right? And if your business is based on a digital strategy, cybersecurity Information technology risk management needs to be at the core of your business or you're not going to succeed, right? And you may be able to fake it till you make it for a little while, um, but, you know, that debt will come due someday. And that's where you really want to have somebody who's got this risk management mindset, but understands the nuts and bolts of how you actually secure and defend the organization to, you know, offset the most probable hazards that will call. And then you can start figuring out the bigger picture strategic risks you need to manage. Yeah, I mean, just I recently got a, a, a call from a recruiter that I've known for a long time, asking me for help, you know, directing them into a, you know, a direction where they think, you know, I, they might be able to have some conversations with people interested in a jobs at a certain price point. And they described it as mission impossible. <laughs> and so, you know, they're just really up against it when some of these companies hire these recruiters out there to try to go and find people at these price points. And I mean, there's a lot that goes into a job like this. So for company executives out there, 
What do you see as the genesis for companies hiring their first CISA? There's, there's really two that I've seen. Well, maybe three to be fair. I mean, the first one is obvious, like something bad happened to them and now they're responding, right? You know, nobody was in charge. It went, it went poorly. An incident happened and now they're scrambling to recover, right? There's certainly a number of those. The second one is somebody in the company, let's say an informed board or an executive said, you know, I'm reading a lot about this stuff. We should probably have somebody paying attention to that, right? Um, and those two are sort of the predominant ones. There's a few others. Uh, that have come up like, you know, divestitures and sort of corporate transactions and those kind of things. But really, it's one of those two pieces, which is something happened or somebody realized that maybe not having many about this role and somebody that we can actually go to as a sort of single throat to joke is what I like to call it, um, might be a problem for us. And we should do something about that. So you're, you're getting, you know, you get out there a lot. You talk to a lot of people in the marketplace. Are these companies ready for their first CISO when you talk to them? I mean, are they ready for what's ahead? Uh, very few of them are, right? I mean, essentially the, the challenge, and, and I like, again, I use analogies a lot, you know, a buddy of mine in college, his father owned a, a garage and he had a customer show up with a car and a tow truck and he, you know, opened the engine cover, he looked inside, he looked at the oil and he asked the customer, when's the last time you changed the oil? And the customer said, oil, don't they put that in the factory? And the car had 40,000 miles on it and the engine had seized, Right. That's how a lot of companies have been managing their technology, right? They hadn't been thinking of the maintenance it requires in the context of cybersecurity, you know, new features, versions, they get all that. So when they hire their first CISO and they tell them that, you know, uh, we need to buy a new engine because the engine is seized up because we never changed the oil, right? They get a bit of sticker right. shock, right? And so, right. so part of it is they just don't understand that they've been so behind the curve that when they're starting, there's a lot of plowing in the field that needs to happen. And they really hadn't thought about, you know, if you bring in an executive, uh, they actually have to be able to go do something. And we have to, A, have budget for it, and we have to be ready to absorb that kind of change as a company. And those are the two pieces that, you know, sort of the first ugly conversations that happen. Sometimes it's after the interview process, but often it comes out during. So when you speak to companies out there or recruiters that that you, are, you know, have relationships with, what are they saying about, why they're looking for a replacement to an existing leader? There's really two drivers. The first and the most predominant is the nature of the role changed and it became more senior and it has a lot more executive presence or board communication savvy that's needed. And this is you know, sort of a challenge for people who've come out of the more technical engineering world is to start to get to that bilingual speaker and be able to communicate to those kind of audiences in a way that they understand, right? That's sort of the predominant piece. The second piece, which is probably related to the first, is that the incumbent built up enough negative energy and will that they don't have the confidence of leadership going forward. That might be because incidents occurred. I mean, that happens sometimes. But more probably, it's about sort of the hard-fought battles that went on over the X months and years while the person was in place, and they didn't have the negotiating skill to get their point across and create animosity um, particularly inside of the technology organization, but it could be with product line businesses too. Those are the two that I see the most. I mean, there's others, people leave, you know, those kind of things, retirements and whatnot. But those are the two main sort of drivers I see when people are out looking to recruit when they have somebody in place. So you mentioned before you were talking about where CISOs report in the organization. And this is something that, you know, if I post this on question on social media, you'll get a, a bombardment of different answers. And I think it's because 
Um, well, you know, you know, not all organizations are created equal. There are different sizes, there are different markets, they have different products, um, and they have different organizational constructs. So, you know, speaking with that in general, I mean, what are the what are the general rules about where a CISO should report in an organization? You know, considering all these other facts. So the the most common starting point is in IT. And if you're really at a foundational level where you're trying to get basic blocking and tackling done, being inside the IT organization is actually effective because you're part of the team, right? But there's a point in time where you have to be able to call IT's baby ugly, right? (laughs) They didn't pass. They don't configure. They have no discipline, you know, all those kind of things. And that's the point in time where you need to leave the IT organization and go to some other function. And so the upside of that is you can hold IT accountable. You can be objective. You're not influenced by the leadership, et cetera. The downsize is you now became one of them. And so you might be treated like any product line business and you put in your you know, work project requests and it goes through the meat grinder of prioritization and you're just another you know, log on the fire kind of thing, right? So you've got that sort of dynamic and that's sort of phase one to phase two. Phase three is when the company looks at the technology risk and the information security and cybersecurity underneath it as part of their overall business risk. When you get to that state of maturity, you're actually in a very different portion of the organization. Now, this varies greatly by industry. So in the financial sector, that tends to put you towards the risk type organizations, might be dealing with credit market liquidity risk. In technology companies, that actually might put you reporting directly to the CEO. And I've seen a big trend in tech companies where the CISO is a direct report to the CEO because their business is technology, Technology is wrapped around this technology risk problem, et cetera. So for me, it's not a simple answer of it should always report here. It needs to change where it reports as the organization matures. Um, And, you know, I'd say starting in IT and ending up towards the executive suite is the trajectory and every company is somewhere in between those two points. So in previous episodes, you've heard me talk about some of these reports from, you know, the, 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 the media not only calling for the firing of CSOs or CISOs and organizations that have been breached, but actually calling for these people to be incarcerated, which is, you know, and, 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 and I've challenged that because I, you know, I think just, you know, yelling out these things is very uh, irresponsible. Um, uh, but, you know, what, what is your take? I mean, in, in the first segment of the show, you heard me talk about, you know, Joe Sullivan again, Sullivan again from Uber and all the support that he gets from uh, the, the security community and how many people know and understand uh, what a professional he's been for so long. And so what, what's your take on these very public firings um, and resignations of CISOs uh, and, you know, uh, around the, the whole industry with everything that's going on lately? What, what's this mean for the future of CISOs? Too? It's, a, it's a bit troubling and it's also not unexpected, right? And so, so the way I look at it is this. The, the CISO's job is to make sure that risks that exist related to information security, technology risks, are pointed out to the organization, they're understood, and they're accepted or mitigated. Right. And so if the CISO is not doing that, if they are identifying risk and communicating upwards in a way that's understood by management and something bad happens. Right. They didn't succeed at their job and they should be terminated. Right. Now, in both of these cases, you know, with Equifax and Uber, the details to the public are not known well enough to know where we were on that spectrum. Right. I mean, I have my own suspicions, but, you know, I I don't want to go into the depths of those. But I think, you know, for me, if the CISO didn't fundamentally do their job, which is translate the risk to business context, right, they're on the hook for that. If they translated the risk and the business leadership understood it and they decided to take it and something bad happened, well, now you have to hold accountable the people who took the risk and the risk 
came back to haunt them, right? And that's where you see CEOs and other people getting fired, right? That, to me, is an appropriate accountability. Now, in these two recent incidents, I don't know where that spectrum you know, was drawn, right? And it's probably a little bit of both. I don't know. Um, but for me, that's a sort of the big distinction. Now, that said, right, whenever there's a crisis, right, part of the crisis response in any company is, you know, it's easy to find somebody to blame, right? And blame, you know, if we can point the finger over here, right, is a sort of convenient remedy. And it's, oh, this is all because Joe didn't patch this thing and, you know, X, Y, Z, let that happen, right? Um, the real condition is, you know, what were the root circumstances in those companies? You know, everybody has a bad day, right? And so, yes, you could have missed one critical system that needed to be patched and the bad guys could have owned you before it, you know, because of it rather. But was that a one-off or was that like every system was like that, right? How do you tell the difference? And I kind of described for a long time that, you know, that how you'd be successful in this field is the absence of failure, right? That's not the best measurement, right? If we protected 99.9% of the stuff and the 0.001% is what burned us, we actually did a good job, right? Um, even if the 0.01% was a significant impact, we had business harm, et cetera. You know, nobody trades in markets and has zero losses. Nobody, you know, has financial products that have zero fraud, right? So there's this expectation piece we need to manage. But the key for me is the CISO has to be communicating the risk and the leadership of the company has to be accepting it. And if they're not communicating that, then they should be in the crosshairs. If they are and business leadership is saying, we don't care, we're doing this anyway, um, they need to be held accountable. So isn't it true that companies really need to acquire battle-tested chief information security officers, some people that have the experience of, of you know, uh, doing battle and, 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 and managing breaches and, and managing a major crisis? I mean, what questions should companies be asking a prospective CISO during the interview process? Well, I think the first is, you know, getting alignment between how the company thinks about risk and how the CISO thinks about risk, right? I mean, this is very much a role that chemistry does matter, right? You have to get along with the people you work with. You have to have the ability to have hard discussions and remain professional and, you know, not emotionally attached to them. Um, and so the first thing I would ask a CISO is, well, how do you think about risk? The second question I'd ask is, well, since you know a tiny bit about our company because you're being interviewed, what do you think our biggest risks are, right? And why do you think that? And, you know, prepared to be wrong, right? Because you don't know the whole totality of the business when you're sitting through an interview process. But you start to get the understanding of how that person thinks and how they approach the problem, right, in terms of the business risk. Well, that's sort of the first set of questions. The second set of questions are, you know, what are the first things you would expect to do in an organization when you come in? And, you know, for me, the way I answer that question, because I get asked it a lot, is I think 80% of being good at cybersecurity is being really fantastic at doing mundane things well, like configuration management, asset management, patch management, right? And they're the least glorious stuff in our whole industry, but they're the thing that saves your bacon most of the time. And so I would be assessing where is the company in that spectrum and what would I recommend for them to do to get to a high level of competence at that. Um, if that type of thing's not coming up in, in the conversation, you know, the, the, the topic of risk or sort of how you, you know, where would you, where would the first place you would look be? That's a problem. All right. Well, we got to take a break. Uh, we, we need to take a break to listen to some of the uh, messages from our, our sponsors. We're going to be back after these brief messages with Mr. Mark Clancy, the co-founder of Cybersecurity Research. So we'll be right back.
The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with one of the most well-known cybersecurity experts in the country, my friend and co-founder of Cyber Risk Research, not cybersecurity research, as I just said before. Sometimes my, my brain goes on autopilot. Cyber Risk Research, Mr. Mark Clancy. So, uh, Mark, I, I want to I continue our conversation, but I want to start talking about some of the things that your company does in terms of research and development and, and some of the things that, uh, that are really sort of in, your, in your, your space and expertise. I mean, what gaps are you seeing in the commercial landscape that are being addressed in pre-competitive research and development? Thanks, George. So the pre-competitive world, right, is before we have a product, right? It's, you know, it's a concept. And, and if you look at what's happened in our field, right, you know, most of the innovations, if you would have come from product companies, we've done incremental things to improve, you know, network intrusion and hunting for bad guys and finding, you know, threat intel and that kind of stuff, right? But if you step back a little bit and look at the root problems we have, Right. A lot of the root problems we have exist because of the way technology is or has been built or more to the point has come into the market. And so when I look at research, I've not seen a lot of things happening to address the fundamental issues that we have. They're kind of band-aids on top of the problem. And they're all sort of post build of technology. Um, and so when I look at research, right, and there, there's sort of different stages of research. Most of what we use in the commercial sector is either applied research or finished product. Right? In the pre-competitive world, you're really trying to understand those fundamental pieces that are the science that go towards what could then turn into applied research or actual products that we might use. And I didn't see a lot of that happening, um, and so I decided to get involved with it. So, I mean, is this just technology research, or are there other non-technical research efforts going on? Uh, lots of it is technology research, but if you think about what our problems are, right, our fundamental problem is... 90% of incidents occur because people click on a phishing message, right? So we have a lot of cognitive human factors research, social science research that needs to happen. And it's starting to as well. But so much of this field came out of more of the hard technical science and engineering universe, right? I think we need to do a mix. Um, I've admittedly focused most of my energy on the technical side of the ledger, but more and more I've been looking at social factors and economic factors as part of the, the calculus of how we need to go tackle these big risk issues we have. So how does this research make it into the hands of practitioners? I mean, how does that work and you know, what's the whole process? It works poorly right now, right? So um, that's actually one of the hard problems. And, and so the Department of Homeland Security has this uh, component of part of their cybersecurity R&D called transition to practice. Right. And the idea is, how do you get the great research that was done that might be fundamental, it might be applied? How do you get it into the hands of, you know, the end public, if you would? Right. And the way you do that is you partner with early stage companies or, you know, mature companies as they're looking at introducing products. And you feed that research into those products through licensing deals, you know, sometimes exclusive, sometimes not. Or you push things into open source domains. So if things come from national labs, come from universities, et cetera. And they become the basis of the tools and products that we buy next year and the year after. 
Yeah, but it's in cybersecurity, a here and now problem, isn't it? In real time, so to speak. I mean, so why should commercial companies focus so much on research? Uh, it is very much a here and now problem. And I'll give an example. So a few years ago, many of you might remember, there was a large campaign of denial of service attacks directed towards the financial sector. And as a sector, we rallied and got around responding to them. But what we realized is there are fundamental design issues that existed in the way that we use technology and the way it could be exploited, right? That were problems that we could not unilaterally address. We couldn't just go buy the new box and install it in the data center. We couldn't go subscribe to the great cloud service in the sky, right, to go fix this issue. And so one of the things we did is we took the experiences that we had and the problems that we had, and we took that to the research community and said, what can we do about it? And what came out of that was some uh, algorithmic techniques and modeling techniques to essentially figure out if somebody was trying to enumerate your systems to find out what's the most computationally intensive function I can do at a website so I can perform what we call low and slow DDoS attacks. And the researchers actually came up with methodologies to do that. And now we're in the process of transitioning that to commercial providers who do DDoS mitigation. Um, and it essentially took a problem that we had this is a pretty short time horizon as far as research goes, you know, a few years. Um, but we have the experience of what the adversaries are up to and what are our fundamental constraints. And that's not well known in the research community, particularly in academia. So, you know, when I think about this, this problem, it seems like a lot of research is about how systems fail. And, and, and why, why is that drawing the most attention? I'll give you two flavors. One is sort of tongue in cheek because sex sells, right? It's much more interesting to hear about something broke or failed or blew up. Makes a much better news story, right? So it gets more headline exposure. Um, and to some degree, as we know as practitioners, unfortunately, that side of the equation is easier. The really hard part is how do we make things so that they're resilient and they don't fail under stress? Um, and that research, in my observation, hasn't got any kind of a notoriety that the attack side does. That's one component. The second component is how do people get involved in research and how do they get you know, interest in this topic? And I think a lot of people get interested. You know, we have this sort of a glorification of the hacker from the culture perspective. Um, can you name me one top you know, group or attribute of defenders out there? You know, <laughs> I think we get as right. far as calling them the blue team, right? And so we sort of have a branding problem on the defense side of the equation. Uh, so I think those are some of the factors that lead to that getting sort of the headline. So who are the researchers? When you say the researchers, who are the researchers? Who are your partners? Who, you know, who are these people? Like, yeah, so I work with a, a bunch of different university groups. I, I'm involved uh, with a research center called the Center for Cybersecurity uh, Analytics and Automation, which is an NSF-funded industry university cooperative research center, which is a whole lot of letters strung together when you acronym it. Acronym it. But... Essentially, it's a few universities that have principal researchers. These are you know, PhD researchers at the university um, who get together with their peers at other institutions and bring their students, graduate students, into the mix. Right? That's the, the research type organizations I've been working with the most. Um, and there's a number of them. There are several centers that are in NSF land uh, focused on cybersecurity. And then we've also had direct relationships with universities where we're in the same geography, right? So I'm here in Tampa, Florida, deal with the University of Florida, the University of South Florida, and set up one-on-one -on -one research projects with them, kind of more in a consulting capacity. Um, so a lot of the research I work with is academically focused. There are, of course, commercial research labs out there as well. So, I mean, so what research areas for defenders of networks are looking promising now? 
So there's a ton of things happening, and you've seen the commercial landscape around machine learning and air quote AI, air quote artificial intelligence, right? I think the sort of cognitive side of how do we use machine learning techniques to make the defender's job easier, the aggressor's job harder, right? To me, that's tackling the underlying economics, right? Their work effort is tiny, ours is huge. Like, how do we shift that? Um, and so that broad category of research is useful. And then inside of that, really, how do we focus on getting the hygiene of an IT infrastructure to high quality, clean room level quality with a minimal amount of human input, right? That, that's sort of another broad category. And specifically, there are sub projects in there, like how do you make decisions about, you know, if I have an incremental dollar to spend on cybersecurity, where should I spend it, right? That's a question is a CISO that is all art today. It's very little science. And we want to make it a provable, measurable thing of if you invest this amount, your risk profile changes from X to Y. And if you do this instead, it goes from you know, Y to Z. Um, so you can make actual business decisions about where to invest and what level of mitigation is worth what level of investment. So another emerging risk that a lot of people are talking about, and I hear this a lot, is the Internet of Things. And, and I'd like to get your thoughts on how does the Internet of Things change the cybersecurity landscape and, and what, what kind of research is, is occurring around this new phenomenon? So, so let me tell a little story, right? So there was a vulnerability that was found in Unix about three years ago that was introduced in 1994, right? And there was a patch for it. I don't remember the exact vulnerability now. But all I remember is that TiVo issued a patch and all the executives in my companies who had DVRs, particularly TiVos, all the TiVos rebooted. And they asked me why the next day, Right. Now, if you think of a TiVo, it is an Internet of Things device, right? It's a video recorder, store, you know, store content for playback later, right? Uh, and it had a vulnerability that was 20 years old in it. Right? I think it was 2014 this happened. Um, so if you think about the Internet of Things, right, we have all these connected compute devices, which are now attack surface, so bad guys can leverage them, that were built on general purpose computing tools, some of which are ancient, many of which are not maintained, Right. And so we just have this proliferation of attack surface. And if you look back, if you look at sort of how do products get to market, like I have never bought a single electronic device that had a cybersecurity crash rating assigned to it. Right. You know, buy a minivan that way. Right. Protect your kids in a car accident. You don't buy any electronic that way. You certainly don't buy anything that's attached to the Internet that way. Um, so for me, that's sort of the ground condition. The opportunity, I think, is. Unlike general computing, these devices all have particular purposes, and those purposes should be reasonably narrow and could be profiled. So my video camera behaves differently than my DVR that behaves differently than my irrigation controller that behaves differently than my video camera, right? Um, but when we look at how they're built, they're all running general, you know, regular operating system stacks, and they can do all kinds of other stuff, and we certainly see criminals hijack them and whatnot, right? So to me, the research topic is how do you sort of profile and constrain these devices so they stay within their swim lane? They only do the things they're supposed to do. And if somebody subverts them, right, they don't actually get any success because it only does the things it's supposed to do, right? <laughs> um, right. And that's the research topic. There's, there's a few. University of Colorado – I'm sorry, Colorado State University is working on this um, in particular. There are many other people looking at it, obviously. But that type of – you know, view, I think, is one that's quite interesting because, you know, I have, I figured out, I have 31 internet connected devices at my house. 
and it's just me and my wife here, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the one that freaked me out is when my stereo downloaded a patch when I was listening to music and it rebooted. I'm like, what the heck is this? Um, and so that's the problem I think we need to tackle is just the proliferation of these devices. We're going from tens and hundreds of millions to billions of things on the internet. And if we don't get a handle on that, uh, the internet's going to be a really even more ugly place than it is today. You know, we we're talking a lot about academic research and partnerships with uh, academic institutions. I, what I got to tell you, in my experience, I find that when I'm talking to uh, academic researchers and some of the major universities, that there's a major disconnect between what we're doing and what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, so what are some of the disconnects that you see, if any, out there? I mean, do you see this problem as well? I mean, in terms of oh, yeah. academic research and commercial and, and needs? I work, with, I work with a number of research scientists who are you know, really brilliant in their field. Uh, they don't live in the commercial world. And the good ones will admit it, right? So you've got sort of just a different neighborhood perspective. That's one issue. The second issue, which I think is actually a fundamental one, is the incentive structure in academia is completely different in the commercial world, right? So if I'm a research scientist, how do I get street cred? I get published in the most prestigious journals. The most prestigious journals are the ones that get the most sightings based on other researchers piling onto that research, right? That dynamic does not translate at all to what we need in the commercial world, because maybe the most unique research project that nobody else has cited is the thing that actually cures our ills, right? Uh, and so there, there is sort of that disconnect. The other disconnect, and, and we might talk about this a little bit later, is they also don't have access to the same data that we have in the commercial world. And in order to build good outcomes for research, you actually need to know what the problems are. And the way you know what the problems are is you look at the data, right? So I think those are three of the aspects that lead to it. Well, I mean, when you talk about the data, though, I, I, I talk to a lot of these guys um, uh, myself and, I, and I'm and I, I hear from them that getting access to the data is a challenge for them. And it's a challenge for researchers when they're trying to conduct this research on our cybersecurity issues and emerging risk. I mean, what, what exactly is the problem here and, and what can be done to, to fix this? Yeah, so there's again, there's probably three or more different dimensions here. One is obviously. The underlying source data has confidential stuff in it. It might be information about employees, it might be information about customers. And the general view when you talk to a general counsel of a company is that they give it to the university, it's all over the internet, right? And so you have to have a relationship where you can share confidential data if that's what needs to be worked on. The university has to have an operational environment where that data can be protected, right? And often those controls don't exist in the same way they would in a commercial enterprise, certainly not a high maturity enterprise. So that's sort of one barrier. The second barrier is there aren't actually great techniques to, do, to de-identify data that provides enough fidelity for the data to be useful for research, right? Um, there's a number of data sets. You know, there's a data set called PREDICT um, that DHS and others helped put together, which is essentially standardized, you know, types of login sensor data that you use so you can do research projects against it. Those kind of programs are very useful. The third piece, which I've seen, and, and I personally haven't spent as much time in this, but I think it's promising, is actually creating synthetic data sets, right, to sort of test out hypotheses. And I was looking the other day at um, Carnegie Mellon's CERT page, and they have a program around insider threat. You know, it's based on some work they did with the Secret Service a few years ago, and they've continued it on. And one of the things I found there, sort of a hidden gem, is they actually have synthetic data sets that you can use to test your tools to see if they can find insider threat scenarios. 
like, you know, people plugging in USB drives and stuff like that, right? Uh, and so there's a neat research paper that's attached to it, those kind of things. And so I think it's a combination of getting confidentiality protection for data sets for, I'll call them one-on-one relationships between a co- company and a researcher, getting sanitized data where they can do other research, and then these synthetic data sets. Um, so the problem is getting slightly better, um, but it's really just that sort of radically different culture and the understanding of each and what's actually possible that precludes getting a lot of data shared to researchers um, in the first place. So what about the guys on the front lines? I mean, you know, how can cybersecurity practitioners get involved with, with research projects? I mean, how, how do they get into the mix here? So it's obviously not something that happens immediately and directly, right? But if you have your company joining one of these research centers where right, you want to participate with the researchers, the principal investigators and the other researchers and say, hey, here's what my problems are. Here's the things I'm thinking about. Here's the challenge I'm having. Provide that context. Now, if you're part of a structured program like I am with the, the Center for Cybersecurity Automation Analytics, that forum and that vehicle exists, right? But even if you're not, you know, you're recruiting people from local universities. Go talk to them. Tell them what your hard problems are. See if they've got people working on that in the university, right? And you can do it for two selfish reasons. One, because maybe they'll come up with some ideas that help you down the road. And two, maybe you get to know the people who are experts in the thing you're worried about. And you could now have a channel to get to that talent as it comes out of the school. Um, and so those are two ways. You know, a lot of what we get involved with as practitioners are sort of these open source projects that go and tackle particular things. And it's more about building tools. Those are useful, too. And I don't want to discourage people from being involved with those. But think about how you get involved with things that are even earlier stage than, you know, the next building of X project in GitHub. Right. Um, and just, you know, stay local is my first starting suggestion. So, Mark, you know, how do people learn more about your company? How do people get in touch with you at Cyber Risk Research? And, and, and how do they learn more about what you do? So, we're, we're, you know, I guess I'd say we're stealth. So, if you hunt down my website, you find nothing. Uh, but you can reach out to me. I'm Mark at CyberRR. I'm happy to take your, uh, your thoughts and suggestions. I'm pretty, uh, pretty visible on LinkedIn myself. Um, and, you know, I expect down the road that some of the projects that I'm helping foster with some of these research communities They'll see the light of day and then we'll do more sort of broadcasting on them, but they're still in the lab. Uh, and so they're not sort of in anybody's hands just yet. Um, good. Good. Well, I'll tell you what, thanks for coming on the show, Mark. I mean, this has been very interesting. I think we've had a great conversation. It's going to get a great reaction. I, I, and I'm looking forward to seeing and all the feedback. I appreciate you. I hope you, come back. hope you come back often. Yeah. Thanks, George. Appreciate being on. All right. Don't forget to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to catch a recap of tonight's show and other cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's all we have time for tonight. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.